Hello, this is Louis Trapani here from Doctor Who Podshock, and this is another Doctor Who Podshock live episode. This was recorded live on the internet via TalkShoe. This is a review of the Shakespeare Code, episode 2 of the 2007 series, or series 3, if you will. So if you haven't seen this story yet, you may want to just take this podcast, this particular episode, and save it until you have, because uh, there will be spoilers in it. Now, fear not, there will be regular Doctor Who Podshock episodes that will be spoiler-free. There's no reason to unsubscribe to the feed. If you haven't seen the latest episodes being transmitted on the BBC, you may want to reserve these particular live episodes that we review the previous night's episode that was transmitted on the BBC until you have seen them. Now, as I said, this is the live version of Doctor Who Podshock, and you can be a part of it. We record usually on Sundays at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's the day after the latest episode of Doctor Who is transmitted on the BBC. So to participate, you can go to talkshoe.com. That's talkshoe, not show, but shoe.com, and you'll see Doctor Who Podshock listed there. You'll need to know our TalkCast ID number, which is 23358. That's 23358. And you can call in at 724-44-7444. Now, if you're at TalkShoe.com, you can participate in the live chat there. You can listen streaming audio there, listen live while it's being recorded. If you don't want to wait for the live episodes to go through post-production, you know, where they're polished and made all um, spiffy for you in, on the main feeds, you can you can um, preview these episodes at TalkShoe.com in their raw state. Emphasis, they're very raw. <laughs> There's more information on our website. Go to GallifreyandEmbassy.org or PodShock.net and you can learn more information about our live shows. So, without further delay, this is Doctor Who, Podshock Live, Episode 74, The Shakespeare Code. If for made Martha, our love grows bolder, but still we find our lonely doctor's spade. If towards prosthesis, our love grows colder, then canst it be our history best played? Tell me, O oh fan, O oh lover of blue boxes, where truth, where lies, where exaggeration be? Is Gareth Roberts cunning as foxes? Fine scribe of comics, but is good playwright he? Will witches they earn our director's pay, or in realization just grow stale? And what of Shakespeare? How young! How gay. Will Avon's best bring matter to the tale? If answer you seek, we have but to do. Live, tis Podshock. You know, Doctor Who.
recorded live. Outpost Gallifrey presents Doctor Who, Parchock, episode 74. So here we are, talk, uh, at, we're using TalkShoe live to uh, record Doc, Doctor Who, Parchock live. And uh, we welcome live everyone. Live from the Globe Theater. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this is our live. second... <laughs> second episode that we're recording live on the net and uh, this will eventually make it its way to the feed but this gives an opportunity for listeners to uh, to not only chime in and listen live but also as a separate podcast we're reviewing last night's episode of Doctor Who that was transmitted on the BBC and this way those that have not seen the latest episode can uh, just sort of pocket this episode until you know this podcast until they have seen it without having to worry about spoilers in our regular podcast. Uh, with me today, we have our uh, regular host here, James Norton. In um, James, are you, are you back in the UK for the Easter holiday? Sadly not. I'm still here in the Netherlands, but uh, okay. having a good time anyway. <laughs> well, welcome aboard, James. Uh, Thank you very much. We have, we have our Canadian correspondent, Mike Duran. Hi, Mike. Hey, guys. Good to have you. We had a little trouble getting you on board, but... Glad to see you safe and sound. Technology makes uh, things easier, right? Thank <laughs> <laughs> <Well, we laughs> you. And we have our regular contributor, Doc Skeptical, with us. Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing good. Good to have you. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, Doc. <laughs> and for the first time live while we're recording, long-time regular contributor, Taras. Yes. Hello, Lewis and all. Hello. Hey, it's great to have you live. Mostly live. <laughs> <laughs> Approximating live. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhat. So, and then, there we go. <laughs> we also want to welcome all those that are listening live, uh, either via TalkShow or via uh, the website. Uh, right now on our website, we have a little... Um, widget, if you will, that will enable you to listen live um, on the website. Yeah, cool. Hello, everybody. We would mention them, but the list is phenomenally long. I'm ever so surprised. It's great to have so many people listening. And and very um, new, I guess, because we're so used to recording, you know, several weeks in advance <laughs> and then have people listen to us. So it's kind of a bit daunting, I suppose. Yeah, well, another good thing about this is that not only can people listen to it live while we're recording, but uh, the podcast will be available to download and listen to about 30 minutes after we finish, after we conclude. So um, people can have immediate access to this episode. They don't have to wait a long time to see our, to hear our reviews of the Shakespeare Code, which is the episode mm. we're reviewing today. Indeed. Episode two of the third series. Just in yeah. case anybody needs any reminders, but I'm sure... Um, the hardcore fans don't at all. It's the Unquiet Dead episode of the 2007 series. Indeed. Or the episode. Exactly. That is just exactly what I was going to say. You know, it seems that... <laughs> Sorry for taking the words right out of your mouth. That's no problem, mate. No well, problem, Thomas. James and I often do that. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds think alike, as they say. Mm. Shall we begin well, I have to say that uh, Garth, Robert, Garth uh, Roberts delivered a great script this time. 
Mm-hmm. And it was extremely well paced, and the uh, production team just did an awesome job with uh, putting it all together. Yeah, the lighting and the direction was just terrific, and I think it's probably been uh, one of the best lit um, episodes ever that I've yeah, seen. Yeah, I noticed that too. Really, hats off and kudos. It was really well lit. Yeah, very, well. very um But I mean, how could you go to London in? in Shakespearean times, 1599, and not have terrific lighting. They did a terrific job, I think, with the locations. They went to the actual Globe Theatre, for heaven's sake, and they were in and around. They they didn't just record it in Wales, thankfully. They moved around a bit and went to several different locations within England. Um, so it was very refreshing, I think. Um, and, yeah, the... the the direction itself was terrific, I thought. No, I agree. I don't think there's any other to that, (laughs) No, technically, I I really thought this episode was executed very well. Um, You know, I I would have liked to have seen a story that maybe was a little bit different than The Unquiet Dead. um, But the genre itself really, I mean, wasn't my cup of tea per se. Uh, I I thought, like... um, it, it, the whole witches aspect of it, uh, even though it was tried to explain scientifically, it was just—I I just wasn't really buying it at all. I, I thought, like, um, like Cats for an original Star Trek series did a better job um, with that episode, and, and I, I sort of enjoyed that format better. But, but that, that's yeah. just a personal thing for me. You know, I mean, I, I kind of agree because, you know, I would have liked it to have been a bit like the werewolf in Tooth and Claw because they didn't really explain anything when they said, okay, spoiler alert, but if you're listening to this, then you should know that there's going to be spoilers. But um, one of the things that that peeved me was that they didn't explain anything. They just said, okay, their science is with words or whatever. And that explained nothing. It would have been so much nicer if they could have said, okay, well, they're just using force fields for this and you know, holograms for that and X, Y, Z. And whereas I think with the werewolf, that was very, in Tooth and Claw, that was very cleverly explained in that it was an alien that had uh, combined with a human and, you know, it was constantly evolving. And I thought that was a really clever and and, and nice way to tackle things, to explain the origins of werewolves, whereas this really was just a bit too supernatural for me. And I mean, Doctor Who doesn't necessarily have to be about um, science fiction, of course. I mean, we've seen similar things like this throughout Doctor Who history. And I didn't have a problem with that side of things. It was just the way it was kind of tackled, which was, I think it was a bit too subtle for me or a bit too wishy-washy, vague for me to kind of believe mm. it. But yeah. I think in terms of the, the spirit of it, um, pun intended, it was, uh, it was very good. I enjoyed it. I think Gareth Roberts is making a a pretty direct comment on the magic versus science fiction aspect of Doctor Who on this. Uh, mm. From what from James has just said, and, and maybe it would have been better uh, either to explain it in a science way or if he's going to go with his, his message, just not even had the small amounts of science they had. The, the, the first bit where the Doctor and Martha arrive in London, 1599, and she, you know, she comes out after her first travel through, you know, trip through time, 
and then they just trample on 40 years of conventional thought about science fiction time travel, uh, which I thought was really cute. The whole uh, the whole conversation about the stepping on a butterfly and and mm. the, the very Doctor Who response to well why would you want to do that who cares almost like saying it's yeah. Doctor Who it doesn't matter that's not what it's about it's not big idea yeah. science fiction no so I, I, yeah I would, sometimes the mystery of why something happens is better than having it blatantly explained in your face sorry I wouldn't have minded to not have the the witches explained at all just uh, leave the science out of it. Uh, that wouldn't have bothered me. Hmm. I, I don't know. For me, I found it uh, satisfactorily explained in the same sense that, you know, like in Close Encounters, you have music being the key to their particular brand of science. Here you have words being a substitute for mathematics, or rather, more directly, a, uh, another form of mathematics. And to me, that's enough. I mean, it's just a different way of communicating the scientific facts. I found that satisfactory. Hmm. But I, I take the point that it's, you know, not terribly clear, but it, at the same time, it's enough of an explanation for me. Okay, mm-hmm. that's fair enough. Because I think that that, that, that it will be, I suppose, the issue that is kind of um, polarized people about this episode. Or the, the main one that I would guess is that you just kind of, it's one of those episodes of Doctor Who where you just have to take things on a faith basis and you have to, it is a light-hearted sort of episode, you know, you have to... Um, just be in the right mindset to enjoy it. And if you're not, if you're expecting, you know, hardcore science, then forget about it with this particular episode because it, it's not going to happen. Um, and I think yeah, that's, exactly, that's what the episode is saying, really. Mm-hmm. I and mean, thematically, okay. it's saying, it's saying yeah. you know, your science is useless, Doctor. That's actually, I think, a line from it. And that's, you know, true. The Doctor is encountering something that is a little bit outside of his world. Mm-hmm. And that's kind, of why, that's kind of why I think ultimately Shakespeare is the one that has to step up to the plate and actually dispel the baddies because in, in the, this particular realm, Shakespeare is the expert, not the doctor. Yeah, that's true. And he it was very clear that he was a very clever chap. I mean, it did get a bit annoying how they kept mentioning it all the time. Oh, my yeah, God, I thought that was deep. overplayed a bit, yeah. It was just kind of, yeah, we get it. Get on with the episode. Come on. It would have been yeah. enough just to have the kind of revelation at the end and the doctor to say, you really are very clever, aren't you? Rather than this whole time, oh, yeah, you're a genius. Because if that was true, then I think that he would have written more than just a few plays. I mean, he wrote a hell of a lot of plays, but and I think he was a genius at what he was, but I don't think he was a genius at, say, maths or science mm. or... Yeah. Any other discipline, it was just kind of like they were saying, oh, my God, you're the Holy Grail sort of a thing. Yeah, which... I, I thought they went overboard with that myself. I mean, I, I'm not anti-Shakespeare in any way, but it just felt like they were just, you know, giving him too much credit. <laughs> yeah, they were ass-kissing a dead oh. guy. But... Well, just to distract the topic a bit, one thing that I was glad for in this episode that from the title, I was worried that it was going to be dealing with some conspiracy theories about Francis mm. Bacon and whatnot, and I'm glad that it didn't go that <laughs> out. <laughs> Actually, yeah, the title is a very clever pun on what happens in the story, given that it, you know, it takes a little code at the end to get rid of the, the baddies, which is kind of cool. And I love the whole... I'm, this is probably going to be, I don't know, uh, either something which 
again, will polarize people, but I love the whole Expelliarmus thing. I love all the Harry Potter references in there because they were quite subtle. I mean, there are two of them, but I, I thought it was very funny. And I thought it was nice that they were going to do that for kids because there's a lot in Doctor Who which references itself from previous episodes of Doctor Who, maybe going back uh, to the past series or many years. And now there's also all sorts of different things from history, which is what I like to see, and, and subtle references which people pick up on. But it was nice that they had something kind of contemporary in there to get people interested in and add a whole light-hearted element to it, I guess. And I think for the first time, other than the subtle references that we've gotten with the uh, the season arcs, we finally have something that shows something that the doctor is going to do in the in his future, but it's coming to bite him before he has done that, as we see mm. in the final scene yeah. of this yeah. episode. So that's one thing that I guess probably Russell. T. Davies that added that, or maybe it's just Gareth adding like a fun scene to end the story with, but to to have a time-traveling show where you don't deal with that, I always found pretty strange, and we finally see this in Doctor Who for like mm. the first time in, uh, I guess, in its history, where they're referencing something that the Doctor does in his future that comes to bite him now. Yeah. It, it's funny a, because Ken was sort of mentioned, I was just saying that Ken was sort of mentioning this in a, um, in a, in a different sort of way. Uh, when we recorded um, our live show at Stony Brook, at, um, the, the podcast that just went out this weekend, uh, where having a, having the doctor meet himself you know, just when they cast a new doctor, when you still have the old doctor and sort of, sort of like playing the time in that respect. And um, so here they're doing it, you know, not with another doctor, but with, another, with a prominent historical figure. I think another element about this particular story that is intriguing to me and hasn't gotten much coverage is that it's actually, I think it's based on another work. Um, in the same way that the upcoming Human Nature is based on um, Paul Cornell's novel, this is, if not directly, then as close to directly as you can get, based on uh, the final Ninth Doctor comic strip, A Groat's Worth of Wit. Some of the lines in, in that comic strip directly make it into uh, Shakespeare code. And really, the plot is very similar um, and I'm, I don't begrudge that. I think it's great because that was a great, great uh, comic strip. It was the one that you know ended the Ninth Doctor's run in Doctor Who magazine. But it's interesting that that aspect of the story hasn't really gotten that much coverage. Well, it's, to elaborate on that, the, what Russell T. Davies has been doing throughout these three series has been mining the non-TV media releases of uh, Doctor Who, be it the novels, the big finish productions, audios, or the comic strips or whatever, and taking what are the best elements of those and seeding them into the various stories that we've seen over the past three years. And for example, in uh, this particular episode in the Shakespeare Code, I recognize a scene that 
reminds me of scenes from uh, the Big Finish audio Minuet in Hell, the uh, scenes in the Insane Asylum. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's like, and in the previous episode, the uh, the slabs reminded me of the shade from the Doctor Who comic strip. So it's like, like these nice nuggets are being plucked out of the alternate media other than the TV series and being seeded in as kind of a wink to the fans that during the dark times stuck with Doctor Who, be it in the novels, the audios, the comic strips, etc. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's hope it doesn't agitate those fans that, you know, feel that it's canon being recycled and, um, you know, sort of like what's been happening with um, the Paul Cornell story, which, um, you know, we've addressed several times. And I just think if it's a, if it's a, a good element, a good story, then um, it, it, it's worthwhile, you know, incorporating into the series um, if it's in another medium. Yes. Yeah. One thing, just to take it away for a little bit from what we've been talking about, one thing that I thought that I picked up off from this episode, I mean, I know it's only the second episode, but I thought it was clear to me that Martha really fancies a doctor. Yeah. And or a yeah. doctor doesn't, even though that kind of contradicts what she said at the end of Smith and Jones, where she says, um, you know, I only go for humans. Uh, I think the doctor clearly doesn't find Martha, or maybe he does find her attractive, but he doesn't fancy her in the same way that James, she fancies. Well, I'm not sure if you had a chance to see the um, the confidential from last week. Okay, yeah, because Russell T. Davies it, it, right, does okay. address that, and what he says is that Martha's character is going to have a uh, a unrequited uh, passion for the Doctor. So, in other words, um, she's going to be interested in him, but he's not really returning that same interest. So there's going to be some sort of energy focused in that direction, but it's not going to be returned. Uh, at least mm-hmm. that, that's what's being said now. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm plus thanks I for that, it, man. I didn't uh, realize. Plus, I think at this point, Martha's attraction is more subconscious as far as she's concerned. She really doesn't consciously think this yet, but probably her character will Comes off. grow to yeah. like the character of the Doctor more. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know about that. I mean, in that bed scene, it was clear what she wanted to do. Yeah. Well, maybe it's not clear to her necessarily, and maybe that's why she wasn't so keen to, you know, get down with Shakespeare, so to speak. Um, <laughs> want of a better phrase. But I, th- I think she knows that she likes him, but I don't think she knows to quite what a degree. Um, right. But, I think it's going to be interesting because I'm going to wonder, knowing this and knowing that the doctor says, you know, you were just only supposed to have one short trip in the TARDIS and that would be it. I'm wondering how they're going to address this in the next episode, whether she's like, please, can I have another trip? You know, showing that she has, she fancies the doctor. But Um, do you really believe that the TARDIS is going to go back 
right away. Well, this is it as well. I was wondering as well whether the TARDIS is going to have one of its lovely little malfunctions and, you know, throw the Doctor on New Earth, but 5,000 years in the future, or whether the face of Bo has some power over the Doctor, like very much we've seen with the Time Lords, is that the Doctor just has to obey and goes and, uh, you know, has to go and see the face of Bo, because clearly that's going to be a major arc in the coming episode, um, which is something that obviously we've been waiting for since New Earth, is when the face of Bo is going to appear and say what I think everybody, it's obvious to the veteran fans anyway, or there seems to be a lot of uh, speculation in, in the in the forums about this, but Really, I think it's it's a no-brainer for me, and I hope that, that I'm surprised with what the face of Bo is going to say, if you know what I mean. Not to spoil it for anybody else who might not know what I'm talking about. But, um, I don't know. It'll I, be I, interesting to see whether this face of Bo arc is the end of the arc, or if it's just a midpoint, and then it goes in a different direction based on what his words are. Yeah, but also, I think it's been nice in this past... I mean, there's all sorts of arcs going on in, in the series. I think we've learned that. But there's always one main one. It was nice within this past episode, and I hope in this next episode when they go to the far future, that you're not going to have too many vote Saxon references or Saxon. Clearly, that's going to be this episode of uh, the series, um, Torchwood or um, Bad Wolf. You know, I, I'm... I'd like to think that they will keep it subtle. I mean, yes, it's nice to have a reference, so it 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 wets your Yeah. Speaking of Bill, which, I didn't recognize any references to Saxon in this particular episode. Yeah. It's yeah, possible that I, mean. I might have missed it. Yeah. So did anybody no, else no, notice something? Either. No, I didn't no. notice. Not in this episode. That's what I mean. I was hoping. No. That's what I'm hoping is that in this episode I didn't pick up on any on any. And I'm hoping in next episode it will be the same um, because, uh, you know, uh, they're going to the far-flung future. It might not be the case because, of course, it's Doctor Who and anything can happen. Um, but I thought in the first episode, for me, it's the first episode and we're getting used to a new companion. Keep things simple and don't throw in the vote sacks and things everywhere because I thought really it was quite obscene with all the posters mm. and everything and, you know, radio announcements and you couldn't fail to miss it. And what I liked, one of the things that I loved about um, the first series is that I never saw the Bad Wolf thing coming um, until the last few episodes. I don't know whether it's just because I'm stupid or something like that, but I, I, it just never, I never picked up on it until, you know, maybe the, the last three episodes of the series. I think I think all the Saxon stuff, uh, the, the whole Saxon arc, uh, we're only really going to see it in episodes in that are set in the present day. So I, mean, I think it was appropriate to have it in Smith and Jones because that's more or less present day. But I don't think we're going to see much to do with Saxon back until the next episode, uh, which is set present day, which is not for a few episodes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they go to Manhattan in the 30s and things like that, so... It should be nice, I think. And I think, and I do think that the average viewer, the 99.999% of people out there, millions of people watching Doctor Who, haven't got the Saxon thing yet. Those of us on the forums, on chats, on podcasts, you know, this stuff jumps out at us. 
but I don't think it jumps out at uh, most. Yeah, that's uh, true. Because because I guess, yeah. And I that's really what they were at. It's more than, than most. We look at it. Yeah, I definitely don't think we're going to see it every week, but it will certainly build. You know, come come a few episodes down the road when we get back mm-hmm. to present day Earth, uh, that'll happen. Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't know. I just it just seems obvious. <laughs> yeah. I like the references, don't get me wrong. All, all my point is, I think, is that they're, in the first episode, I think they did go a little bit over the top with it. But, you know, as you say, I think you're, you're quite right. Most people probably won't have noticed them. But yeah. um, he did, and it was a bit kind of, you know, oh, God, I hope that it isn't going to be like Torchwood every episode. And clearly, Russell T. Davies has a, a brilliant formula, and it works very very well but i think fans are kind of seeing the trends and know his writing style and how he formats things so i'm hoping that this is going to be the series where we're going to see something a little bit different but i don't know i mean it's very difficult to say at the start of of a new series um because we don't really know martha yet we get we're growing to love her or at least i certainly am um, I'm really enjoying uh, what she is uh, having to to say and and do, and I'm really liking her character so far. But we have a lot to learn about yes. her. Thank you. I, I feel that she's um, fitting in very comfortably. She's like a like a, a nice, comfortable pair of, of shoes or sneakers, or um, you know, it's just I, I don't really find myself having to get used to her or adjusted to her. She just works for me. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what people think in this episode about the doctor's rudeness returning. The doctor's rudeness returning. What? Um... Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a number of points. I mean, clearly he's uh, sniffing with Martha at points, and he, he shouts directly at the, one of the jailers. There are little points along the way where he gets a lot angrier. I think than we saw him in. Series two. Series two, I think, is very light. There are little moments here and there where he's rude. But in this episode, it was, oh, once every 10 or 15 minutes, there was a line where he was very sharp, very direct. That's, yeah. that's the other half of the 10th Doctor's character. The, that's the kind of man I am, 10th Doctor, yeah. as opposed to the, the big red button 10th Doctor, as my friends call them. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad yeah. to see a return to some of that, the edgier, Tenth Doctor, and and I think it, it counts for more when you have the contrast between the two sides of his character. So if he's not like exactly. that all the time, but it's like if he it's that turn on a dime aspect. Yeah, it. yeah, and to me it's really interesting how you know Rose was the governing force on that. Now that she's gone, it really seems like that is the dominant characteristic. Well, maybe not dominant, but it certainly is a bigger characteristic than we thought before. Coming yeah. to the fore, and I guess in. Uh, the Christmas special, Donna yeah. blatantly mentions yep. that he needed a moderating force, and it looks like Martha's not that yet. Yeah, he, ever will. Yeah. Yeah. he needs somebody to stop him. But, and I think that it's kind of how he's getting over Rose, in a way, or how he's coming to terms with what's happening. Because clearly, I think that the Doctor wants something to happen with Martha, he wants her to kind of stay, and 
he's seen her potential. You could really see that he was eyeing her up and thinking all the time, even in the first scene uh, where they're transported to the moon, you know, he was thinking, wow, she's really got something here. It, you know, this could be an awesome companion. You could see the and cocks way turning he in his head. This is the other uh, intern in that scene where he yeah, oh, she'll be all right. Come with yeah, me. don't bring her, sort of a thing. Yeah, that was again very rude and very direct, of course. Um, but to me, that's just been sort of always adopted to an extent, and this is really. Um, just like directness on steroids, really, because there's always been times, particularly Tom Baker, I think, could be very direct when needed. Mm-hmm. So could Christopher Eccleston thinking about it. All of them have this quality, but I think since Rose has left, the doctor really doesn't have any time to mess around, and he doesn't want to. He he wants to get on with things and... and you know, he's he's not that sort of guy. He he he's a guy who's driven and and wants to to get things done. Really, I suppose. Well, some of the um, rudeness may even harken back to the William Hartnell Doctor, which is the exactly. rude character. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I did I did think that. Now you mention it um, briefly when he was because it didn't come across as me as something that I really picked up on. I just thought, oh, well, that's the doctor, that's how he is, you know. Maybe it's yeah. just that he is maybe stepping in, taking a little facets from uh, William Hartnell's doctor and trying it out and testing the water, so, so to speak. But, it, I mean, he has that fun and, and light-hearted side to him as well, which is great. So it's not like he's rude all the time. So it's not like it's very obvious and it's something that you pick up on for me personally. But I just think it's the doctor being the doctor, and you're quite right. He doesn't realize when he's being rude. He he used to ask Rose, you know, am I being rude again? Or, you know, those sorts of things. And she was the one who put him in line. And Martha clearly is just getting used to his character and getting used to him and um, learning about him. I think uh, maybe it might be addressed later in the series, possibly. And kind of elaborating on that a bit, uh David Tennant's performance, he can channel more of his predecessors than, uh, I guess, any of the others have done. And we see that in uh, the prior changeovers, we would have a totally different doctor than his predecessor. But this particular one really incorporates the elements of every single one of his predecessors, which is very interesting in his performance. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think I'll go with that. Yeah. Interesting. The fifth doctor said a, a man is the sum of his memory, sort of, and, and now we're at the tenth doctor, so he has that much more to draw upon as far as his like past selves and uh, past personalities and traits and whatnot. Right, but he's drawing more on his predecessors than any of his predecessors have done. As not really the quantity so of different references, path. but as far as the amount that he's drawing on his predecessors. Hmm. That, that might be true, but I think he's drawing less on any individual predecessor than Correct. some of the earlier, than the post-Tom Baker doctors, at least, where you can see a, more, you know, very direct copies or uh, of, uh, and perhaps copies. Or an amount of maybe two predecessors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that there's very rarely do I see any direct, oh, Tennant is doing 
so and so. Right. Yeah. I mean, I might have said that with Sylvester McCoy when he was obviously trying to copy uh, Patrick Troughton. So, or or some other example. I'm not not meaning to pick on him in particular. <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> what did we think of the characterization of Shakespeare in this story? Um. I thought it was interesting because clearly they've gone to a time where he is younger. And I think when people think of Shakespeare, they don't classically think of him being this young gentleman. They think of the older, uh, bolder guy with the rough and the, the silly tights and, you know, the silly moustache and all that sort of stuff. They don't classically think of this young gentleman who is successful and, you know, who is attractive, I guess, to to women because uh, I think that the if, if I'm not wrong, he did have something of a... Um, of a, uh, lots of affairs when he was younger, Shakespeare himself. And I also thought that it was interesting how they chose a northern actor to portray Shakespeare because whenever he's portrayed in any other instance, he's always really posh and really uh, refined. And I liked it that he was kind of, well, um, Dean Lennox Kelly, the guy who played Shakespeare in the Shakespeare Code, he's actually from near Blackpool. Um, and he's also a very... I know he's a very big fan of, of Liverpool, and he did have this kind of Scouse twang to his accent. And I, I thought it was it was interesting that how they portrayed him and refreshing, really different, certainly. Yeah, in the confidential, they really went into how there's very little historical data on the actual life of Shakespeare, so they were able to go with making him the rock star of his era, they say. So that was a very uh, direct uh, choice by the production team to portray him as such. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I really should uh, watch the confidentials before we do this because it's nice to have that kind of insider information. I said before that I think, I think Russell T. Davies' Doctor Who is is always painted with a thick brush, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and and I, the, the whole rock star Shakespeare fits right in with that in trying to make Shakespeare relevant or accept, not, not, not the material necessarily, but his, his status acceptable and understandable to a modern audience and a younger audience watching the show now to try and uh, you know, give, give them some sort of connection from modern day to, to 400 years ago. Uh, and so, so I think hopefully yeah. then people will get interested in Shakespeare then. Well, that and that and to get people maybe to get people interested, it's and it's obvious Gareth Roberts is, uh, has an interest in Shakespeare, but also to to I guess to make the material not seem as stodgy as we might look on it as now and as upper class and and all of those kinds of words that you might use to describe Shakespeare that this really was entertainment for the masses and this was the these were the soap operas of of Elizabethan England with sequels and, and all yeah exactly and that that that, that that you know that's so well done with the the way you'll come back tomorrow to find out what happens yeah and. And very much in, in a way similar to they didn't really go that way with Dickens uh, a couple of years ago, 
but uh, that'd be another example of somebody that we look up at now, but was really, you know, aiming entertainment, not necessarily at just at the upper class, but, but at everyone and, yeah, and popular and accessible. That's, you've got to make your money, haven't you, even in yeah. Shakespearean times. And, and, and would Shakespeare be writing soap operas if he was here now, today? Exactly. Maybe. Maybe in 150 years' time, people will be looking at the... <laughs> that would be a chilling thought, isn't it? If they would uh, look to neighbours and think, oh, wow, this is a fantastic piece of literature. It's horrible. <laughs> a chilling thought. One other thing about the uh, episode that I couldn't quite make my mind up about. I thought it was kind of annoying to because it was. I think it was good fun, but I think it was overdone a bit. Was all of the references, you know, like oh, you should use this, oh, you shouldn't use that to his works, his very famous works that clearly Martha and the Doctor had influenced Shakespeare to write. Like in the end, you know, Sonnet 18, um, when he's talking about, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? You know, you should talk about to be or not to be and all that throughout the entire episode. I couldn't make my mind up about that. Once more onto the breach, he goes, that's more of mine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would, there was no need for Shakespeare to say, that was one of mine. He could have just smiled or something. It was just annoying how it was like, ran down your throats all these references all the time and it was fun don't get me wrong but you know i only have a tolerance for such thing for so long when i'm just like okay get on with it you know let's solve this mystery and not bugger about with stupid references yeah they, they could have done with a couple less yeah it was it just felt i particularly like them yeah I, I don't get me wrong i liked them but i just thought that there were lots of them and you know, too much of a good thing is never enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does create some paradoxes because, um, you know, obviously if they're quoting Shakespeare themselves and then, you know, then Shakespeare hears them and hears it from them and then he uses them, you know, where did it originally come from? So it's just playing with the timeline, I suppose. The circle yeah. is complete. Yes. Mm. <laughs> it's a pretty profound statement with regards to paradoxes when the writer of the episode uh, dumps on Ray Bradbury but cites Back to the Future as influence. So I think, uh, and, and I think that's quite cute. Uh, so I think, <laughs> I think that's the general staff opinion on uh, how important paradoxes are. Yeah, the, the Back to the Future reference was kind of surprising. Anytime I hear, you know, pop culture references in Doctor Who, it always, you know, I have to, like, you know, turn my head twice or whatever. Did they just say that? You know, sort of like the Spock reference uh, back in the 2005 series. No, but this Doctor loves pop culture references. In particular, it's one of his defining characteristics. He loves throwing those things out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just different because in the classic series, it's, very rarely was there anything, you know, ex- with the exception of the Beatles, perhaps. Uh, it's, it's hard to find any current day, um, you know, references that they used when, at the time they were making those episodes. That's also reflective of the importance of pop, pop culture in society you know, today versus 40 years ago. That's, mm-hmm. It's Doctor, Doctor Who changing with the times, not Doctor Who, you know, necessarily being changed. It's just reflective of the, the world we live in, I think. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. 
Well, I wonder, gentlemen, we've been waffling on now for about 40-odd minutes. I'm wondering whether we should kind of tie our thoughts together into individual reviews as we so like to do. Well, one thing before we get into the uh, review thing, I'm just wondering, on the scale of historical influences, where do we <clears> place this episode in the fact that it explains why we don't have Love Livers uh, 1? Like, you know, you have the visitation, which explains the uh, London fire. You have, um, I guess you could say, City of Death, which maybe doesn't explain anything, but certainly touches on the Mother smile. Um, yeah. We have various Hartnell uh, historicals. I'm wondering, just on the, uh, the historical incident, which it tries to explain, how highly do we rate this episode? Satisfactory explanation? Is it a fun explanation? Um, I like these sorts of Doctor Who episodes. I really do. I think, I mean, it's very easy in all of the, the fun of the episode to forget the core reason for it. And I think that these sorts of episodes, that's very easy to define and very easy to see. Um, and I like those sorts of things because it really gives it a direction. And all the time you're interested and you are one wondering why, you know, and it, it, it kind of makes you appreciate why the doctor and Martha want to stay there. Because, of course, they could leave and just go somewhere else. And the doctor could have taken Martha home. But they themselves are curious, which, in a way, also makes you very curious about what is going to happen. Not that you're not already, but it just adds to that dynamic, if you like. And so I really sort of appreciate these, these sorts of episodes. And it's something that, at least for the kids' point of view, I would like them very much to do a lot more of the historical type of things if they are going to stay on Earth. Um, because I know we've talked about this many times. I personally would like to see them do more things on other worlds with the cultures, with mm -hmm. aliens and things. It is sci-fi, of course, and get away a bit from Earth. But if they are going to stick to Earth, then I think it, it's quite good that they do do some historical episodes like this where they you know, explain something or whet your appetite about something, even if it's only like um, the girl in the fireplace so that people become aware of, of who Madame de Pompadour was. Just to, you know, then it gets your interest in the history flowing where perhaps you wouldn't know who Madame de Pompadour was and this would introduce her to you in a way. And to elaborate on that, James, the BBC does very well with period drama. Of course, and, yes. And that's playing into their strengths. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But that's why I like them personally. I mean, I don't know what you, the rest of you guys think, but I like them for that reason. I, I agree with uh, you totally, James. I think that uh, we've had a lot of historical stories through... I guess uh, the first two series, and now we've had our first one of this series, and we, we already know that there's going to be more coming up. And it's part of the original remit of Doctor Who that uh, was, was lost along the way. And uh, in the 70s and 80s, we just had very occasional uh, trips into Earth's history. And I mean, as a fan, I tend to prefer those stories more to you know, some 
some alien race in a quarry somewhere, I think matches, you know, what, what I expect from Doctor Who a lot better. And uh, from what uh, Tras said, absolutely, the, the, the experience of the BBC in making period drama means that they can create great sets, great set design, better use of locations to create convincing historical periods on, on their budget, I think, far better than they can maybe some, some other locations in either Earth's future or alien worlds. And I think it's good use of resources, and it's entertaining. Well, I believe this was probably the best historical that we've had since the revival. And uh, yes, I believe the, I the pacing of this episode was very well done. And the uh, the monsters were a good choice for the time period. And I just think that this was an overall excellent uh, job done by the production team. And it's obvious that they did put a lot of money into this episode. And it's like, I heard that mentioned, and it's obvious that a lot of that money came out on the screen. Yeah, I agree with exactly that. It was uh, a very well-polished episode and certainly will uh, probably be one of the ones that sticks in my mind from the series. Um, in terms of lighting anyway, the only thing that I think matches it is the girl in the fireplace, the other historical episode but even then that didn't have the ties to history really it you know because as we mentioned this was explaining why love's labor's won we don't have it anymore it's lost and i would have liked something like that in the girl in the fireplace but nevertheless I, I, you could see the production quality I, I see the girl in the fireplace as a hybrid of both a historical and a future history so it's yes. kind of in its own category, where while this is a almost a uh, pure historical as far as it taking place completely within uh, that particular time period. Okay, fair dues. Louis, are you still there? You uh, are very quiet, mate. <laughs> I think Louis uh disappeared for a moment. Louis is having some difficulty hearing us, I think. Yeah, he is. But anyway, Taras, yeah. I'm sure he'll come back hopefully. Um what would you how would you rate this episode? Well I think it's an excellent episode. I don't really particularly like giving numbers as you may have gathered from the uh reviews of the big yeah, but finish. If, if I have to twist your arm and, and You're not force you. Twist my arm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. I, I like this episode. It's an excellent episode. Okay, fair dues. So, Darth, what did you think, mate? Well, uh, I have to reveal a little bit of a bias in saying that of all the episodes that I have any glimmer about this season, this is the one I was most anticipating. Uh, right. Primarily, primarily because of its writer. As you may know, I'm a really big fan of Doctor Who comics, and he is... Uh, certainly of late, an important figure in Doctor Who comics. And I, I think he's sort of the nouveau Nick Briggs of Doctor Who fiction in that he's a guy who sort of worked himself up through the ranks of Doctor Who fiction until finally getting his own first episode. And so I was, you know, I'm, I'm at a three just because the guy wrote the episode. Uh, well, is this in theory his second episode? Because he did do Attack uh, of the Grass. Is that really an episode? I don't know. Uh, is it certainly not. Is it on my DVDs? I don't think it's on my DVDs. I don't know how. I don't know. 
Um, but in terms of a, <laughs> well, it was on TV. Ah, uh, on some people's TV, not mine. <laughs> I don't think it made it to America somehow. But yeah, you know, for a full episode, it certainly was first. And man, it's a really, really good one. Uh, I don't think that there have been that many people, not even Robert Holmes, whose first episode was as good as this one. There are some points that disturb me about the episode, and they're actually production ones, really. I hated, absolutely hated the makeup on the witches. Yes, I, I agree with you there. I forgot to mention that. But I, I, oh, the, to, to begin with, I mean, it, it got better, I think, as time went on. I think when they got out the green lighting, it became a lot better. But I completely agree with you. To begin with, I thought that rubbish, that makeup is just utter rubbish. Seriously, I thought I was watching an episode of Puff and Stuff. I don't know if you know that old uh, <laughs> Marty Croft children's show, but it was just, it was horrendous. And I think they could have done far better if they had gone in sort of a puritanical image of uh, witches. But I know why they did. I mean, they did it because that's what kids believe witches look like. So whatever. I mean, for the kids, all right, whatever. But still... But it's also you have to remember that these witches represent an alien race. Uh, True, true. But I think you could have had them basically look normal with maybe some severe clothing. And then occasionally what would bleed through would be one of the um, the Carrionites, Um, Hmm. a more more wraith-like structure, so that it's sort of a more novel approach to witchery. I don't know if that's a word. but, you know, what a, if it quickly identified for kids that were talking about witches, then I guess that's good for that segment of the audience. And we do have to remember it is, it, we're making episodes for kids as well as adults. So that's, they represent yeah. archetypes more than anything, and that's kind of how yeah. one expects a witch to look, especially children. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't think, yeah. for me, it was an issue with how they looked, um, with you know, that they were witches. I like that, but I just thought the makeup was awful. I thought yeah. Th- yeah. that out of everything in the episode, they'd done so well with the production values, but that was the only, the one thing I thought that let it down. I wasn't pleased with the makeup at all. Yeah. I thought I can completely understand that I would rather not have makeup and then look, them look normal and just try and put in a bit of dialogue there to explain it. You know, they look like humans because they're in our realm or something like that. Simple explanation. But, of course, that wouldn't have been as chilling. But I would have rather them not have the makeup than them look the way that they did. It just it wasn't convincing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. That's just how I felt yeah. about it anyway. Yeah. I like the direction in this episode better than I did in the last episode. I'm still really missing Uris Lind on historical episodes because he's very, 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 very good at mm. uh, getting a, a lot of a fresh the camera movement that he use, uses really draws you in and helps to narrate the story a lot better. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that Charles Palmer didn't hit all the narrative points that he needed to hit. He did. And certainly he drew good performances out of people. But mm. it's just something a little static about the way that he directs that makes me think it's a little bit ordinary for what it could be. But 
it's a minor minor quibble. Really, if I'm going to give it a rating, you know, four and a half out of five. Um, four and a half. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I'm very partial to historicals, and you know what? What's really cool about this episode as a historical, it reminds me or makes me think this is what a historical in the Graham Williams era might have been. Kind of, you know, it's a very um, humorous historical and, and kind of a little bit off the ball. And I think if, if Graham Williams had had some money, this is maybe what he would have given us as a historical. And I, I find that idea interesting to think of mm-hmm. Graham Williams doing a historical. I liked it. So a very strong episode for me. Oh, good. I'm glad. Okay, so... Mike, what did you think about it, man? Oh, I thought it was great. I guess uh, I already ever, you know, people know that I've, I like the historical episodes. I've, I've enjoyed all the ones they've done so far. I think this is probably of the sort of the more period historicals, so not uh, not the 20th century historicals. I think this one, uh, I don't know if it, I, I wouldn't put it above uh, Girl in the Fireplace, but certainly uh, over Tooth and Claw and Unquiet Dead. Uh, and and I think Charles Palmer actually does a, a, a I think he does a, a good job not just a good job but I think he does a better job than Euroslin in some ways uh, in terms of the, the lighting that's been mentioned and uh, I mean obviously you've got a, a lighting designer who's, who's doing that as well uh, but in terms of the directing and the whole coming together of the production design on this episode was was spectacular even the, right down to the, the the CGI and the matte paintings uh, I don't even know if they do matte paintings as matte paintings anymore but just contributed a really terrific atmosphere to the story and uh, that most of it was set at night was, was terrific. It, it may not be historically accurate, but it, it gave the story a real spooky feel that I think that if, if you're a, if I look at each season as, as a new fan coming in, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, sort of a, a visions of different kinds of Dr. Who each week. And if Series 3 is where you've come into the Doctor Who, either because you've never heard it before or because you just turned five years old, uh, I think it's a great introduction. Great to see Gareth Roberts finally writing for the new series. I think it was a name that a lot of us were surprised to see missing from the first two series uh, based on his pedigree with the books, the audios, the comics, uh, and some of the other people from those, those spin-off areas that, uh, that did write for the first two series. You know, I don't know, uh, you know what more I can say in terms of it, it looks great, it's witty. Uh, I think we've la- I say lacked. I don't think we've had an episode this witty so far in the new series. And I think you know mm-hmm. Gareth Roberts really stands out, and that's what he does. And that's I mean that's the sort of the, the magic he brought to the the first episode of the Sarah Jane uh, series. And uh, hopefully, in fact, we know we'll see back in Doctor Who now uh, next year. So that, that, that that'll be great. And uh, in terms of giving it a rating, uh, I'm going to go for a four out of five. I give it a bit higher than last week, uh, although I really enjoyed both. But uh, it's still, still, again, as I said last week, there's still a lot of season to come. So I'm not going to be dishing out the five out of fives just yet in week two. Uh, but uh, who knows, maybe it'll, uh, it'll, it'll jump up in, uh, in, uh, in my memories after I've seen the whole series. But, yeah, I, I really enjoyed last night. And I, I didn't know coming in, I kind of forgot Gareth Roberts was writing it. And I remember that uh, you know, last year Tooth and Claw was good. It started off great and sort of petered off a bit and, and wasn't as memorable towards the end. But this one kept the pace up and kept the excitement up right through the whole episode. 
Hmm. Okay. Fair dues. Well, I, we, as I say, we have kind of lost Lewis momentarily here, but uh, hopefully he will be back with us. Um, in the meantime, I'll just give my, as I think I'm the last person. I haven't missed anybody. Uh, anybody else off? Have I? I don't think so. Um, I'll give my thoughts on the episode just as a as a whole. Um, I can't help but echo what everybody else has said in that everything about the episode in terms of the technicality, aside from the makeup for me, was just terrific. And um, the special effects, the lighting, the mood of, of the episode, I thought was just terrific. And of course, as everybody said, Gareth Roberts is a terrific British writer. And, you know, he's someone who has a huge history in Doctor Who and someone who uh, is very, very uh, well respected. And it is, it's very difficult, I think, it looks sorry, very easy to forget that he has done uh, things like the Sarah Jane Adventures, you know, because a lot of people won't even have looked to who's directed that or seen who's directed it. He also did um, directed Attack of the Grask, for those of, of you not in the know, where just if you don't recall, if you've not seen or read any of his books or other episodes, just something from recent. But for me, it was also a terrific episode. And I find it, I kind of agree with Taris here in that it is very, very difficult to to sort of, give the episode a rating without having seen the entire series as a whole because it's very very difficult to do that because sometimes you you feel like rating an episode four out of five and then as soon as you do that another episode comes out which just completely blows the previous one out of the water so i don't know i i'm I want to give this a four. I really do. But I think I'm going to have to give it a three and a half. Because for me, there were just bits of it that I found a bit annoying. As I've mentioned, the makeup. I thought the references, the constant references were somewhat annoying, personally. Um, I enjoyed them, but I thought that there were maybe a little bit too many of them. And for that reason just those two reasons alone. I know it seems quite harsh because it was a very, very enjoyable episode, but I'm just kind of wary of giving things. A lot of people have commented that, oh, James, you give out far too many fours and so on. So for that reason, I'm going to give it three and a half. But Lewis is back now with us. Thank goodness. Hello. I don't know what happened there, but... um, Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, of course. Okay, good. (laughs) I was worried there. It's very strange. We're obviously we're using new technology here, and uh, for about five minutes, everyone was sounding very gobbled and sound like you went through a cyber toaster of some sort, and I couldn't make out anyone. And then it all cleared up, and I was hearing everyone, but I didn't realize that I wasn't being heard. Somehow I was uh, disconnected from the conference, even though I was still hearing everyone, which that's why I didn't realize I was disconnected. So I had to redial in, and I'm back. <laughs> so. Um, I, I see we lost Harass though. Yeah, he uh, in the text here in Talkshoe, he was saying how uh, sadly his cell phone battery died. I guess he was calling oh, in with the right. extra minutes. 
So maybe he will um, he will come back, but at least uh, we have had the opportunity to uh, to hear his opinion about the show. Okay, so I, I missed a, I missed everyone's um, sort of roundup um, of the episode uh, except for the very tail end of it. Uh, what I'm going to say is that um, I'm going to give it a I, I'm I, I guess I'm in the minority here from what I can understand, but I'm giving it three tortoise groans out of five, and I'll add an extra tortoise groan for those that are into the whole like Harry Potter genre type of things, because <laughs> for me this is you know subjective. I think it's it was a well executed episode. Um, mm-hmm. The lighting technically was very done done very well. The the writing was done very well, and it's it just the uh, it just wasn't my cup of tea as far as the the whole witches genre and it's just I, the whole Harry Potter stuff. Um, I, I obviously I, I'm not a big Harry Potter fan. I, not to say that I dislike it. I I, I like the one that uh, the the movie that did um, dwell into time travel. That was my favorite. But like the last movie I I caught to try to catch David Tennant in, I, I just felt like it was like three hours of my life I was never going to get back. So. Uh, <laughs> but, but again, it's not. A, it's. It's. I understand that's a pure subjective thing on my part, and it's not. Um, I, I don't need to, um, you know, um, belittle this episode because of that. I, I think it was um, a well done episode. I just. It just wasn't really. I, I enjoyed. So it wasn't your cup of tea, really. Yeah, it just wasn't. Um, you know, like I said, I, I enjoyed like Cat's Poor in Star Trek and how they handled that type of doing that sort of thing better here. I just, I felt it was a little rehash of the Unquiet Dead in certain respects. And um, I, and, and it just didn't have the pace and the rhythm that, that caught me and, and carried me through it. I, um, right. But like I said, it, it's, I, I didn't dislike it. I just didn't enjoy it. It was kind of an I, okay I episode for you, basically, which is yeah, why you're giving yeah. me three stars. I guess because I guess it's that's the of the yeah. road. Yeah, yeah. But like I said, it's, great, if, if you're fun. into this type of genre, then I would add an extra groan to that. You know, I, I to me, it's just um, I, I'm. It's probably a four out of five, but I'm giving it only a three, only because of my own subjective taste. Fair dues, fair dues. Can't, yeah, can't argue I, with that. I know yeah, we had. We have one listener that wanted to chime in. Actually, we had two, but I think we lost the, the audio input from for Cliff and Stephanie. Shira Koro, if I'm pronouncing your screen name right, did you want to chime in on your thoughts on this episode? Uh, hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah. I can hear you perfectly, mate. Go ahead. All right. Excellent. Um, yeah, um, I, uh, I really enjoyed the episode. I liked it a lot better than uh, Tooth and Claw. Maybe around about the same as Unquiet Dead. I mean, obviously, those are the two episodes with the most direct comparison to it. I think there, there were a couple of points, uh, you know, during the episode that made me kind of groan. But, you know, at first I wasn't sure about the Harry Potter stuff. But um, on reflection, I kind of liked that. Um, I actually liked the way, I think, uh, James or whoever it was mentioned earlier, the way that he's, you know, putting all the pop culture references in. I actually like that. I think it makes the program and the character a bit more real, as long as they don't overdo it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also agree with what James said, that it's kind of difficult to rate it because you haven't seen the rest of the series. But I think mm-hmm. I would, on reflection, maybe I'd probably give it a... Hmm, difficult to go between three and a half or four. 
um, maybe three and a half. Mm-hmm. Ah, I like it. it. You're uh, reflecting what I'm thinking. So I guess really that gives, I think it, it was, people gave it either a three, a three and a half or a four. So it's basically a three and a half average anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'd say that. It, it was a slightly, it was, yeah, it's difficult to rate, I think. And I think Taras had a good idea, but I think if we've done it so many times in the past, and I think it is worthwhile because then it's interesting to listen back to it maybe in the context of the entire series and then think, wow, I, now, now I know what I know about the entire series. I never would have given it that rating or, you know, something like that. So in that aspect, I think it's interesting to give our impressions of it so soon after uh, watching it because, of course, we're recording this now only a day after almost, uh, yeah, it would this time yesterday it would have been on. So... You know, we're doing it directly a day after it has been on. So I think it's quite cool and interesting to do to do these. And I hope uh, that the listeners out there um, enjoy them. It's certainly great to have a live audience feedback with everybody able to comment. And uh, I'm just sorry, I'm, I'm trying to get used to all the we in Talkshow. We have all these uh, text bubbles and it's, it's very difficult yeah. to kind of keep up with everything going on all at once. And uh, if I, if I haven't mentioned things, I do apologize, but it is, it is good fun. <laughs> it is very good. Yes, fun. Yeah. We're, we're getting uh, acclimated to the whole technology of doing this. It's only our second live episode, but I, I think they're fun. And I agree. I'm looking forward to doing this after, you know, after each new episode is transmitted, getting immediate feedback and, uh, you know, while it's, you know, fresh in our minds and um, it gives listeners a chance to get it directly as well. And they don't have to wait for post-production to hear it. So um, it, it's all good all around. Yeah. Yes, we should probably point out as well that our texting audience is going along with our audio um, reviews as well, and they're giving it, uh, looks like, about 3.75. Okay, fair dues. Yeah, I think that is uh, a, a good rating, because uh, it's, a, it's a good episode, but I think it's difficult to rate this kind of thing without seeing it in the context of the whole series i think but anyway i guess we'll see you next week with uh, it's gridlock right but uh, the kind of the um the trailer didn't really show us anything spectacular um i think it's going to be and it didn't give anything away as either so i think it's going to be interesting to watch it and see if it is uh well a, a, we know it takes place in New New Earth again, and the face of Bo is back. And yeah, for me, that's the most interesting flying part of the episode. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be about it. And you have the cat people back again, which seems to be really cool because this time they're going to be blokes, or there is at least mm-hmm. one bloke there. So um, yeah, it should, it should be interesting. I, d- I don't know. I don't know what the plot's going to focus on other than a big traffic jam and people seem to be going missing. And that's all really, I really glimpsed from, uh, from the trailer. Well, we know that the series is going to have a, um, it's going to have another New York episode back in the thirties. So it's, we're going from new New York to, uh, to just New York, New York. Yeah. And essentially have two New York stories, three episodes in a row. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to those ones with the Daleks because we know, this, okay, if, 
you shouldn't be listening to this uh, talk show style episode, I guess, because we do give away a hell of a lot of spoilers. But what I think will be interesting is that Dalek, I think it's Dalek Sec, one of the black Dalek anyway from Doomsday who performed mm. a temple shift. That's the same Dalek that will appear in this episode. So I think it's going to be really cool to see to see it in that time period. And there seems to be a great supporting cast just looking on either imdb.com or Wikipedia or the several sources out there on the net. Um, and even I think Russell T. Davis has alluded to the fact that more than one um, Dalek performed an emergency temple shift, which to me um, is a bit weird because the Daleks have always wanted to be able to to time travel and it seems strange to me that they can d- just do it now without really any form of explanation and I hope that will be covered because if not then why couldn't they just completely colonize the universe why not just go back to a time before if you want earth so badly go back to a time before man was on earth and prevent us from evolving kind of like instead of um uh, Genesis of the Daleks, make it Genesis of the humans or something. I don't know. Well, they had it time travel. In, a bit silly. The Daleks had time travel in the chase. Yeah, so the they've chase. had time That's travel true. for 40 years. <laughs> That's true. But even they know me, not to misuse it. Yeah, and for me, it just seems weird how that wasn't explained. It was just crazy. I thought it was insane. But anyway, I guess all will be explained. At least I hope it will. <laughs> going to be interesting to see how the series pans out this is what's great i guess is that we can all compare notes and talk about it should be good well, yeah the idea is if they didn't have time travel then there wouldn't have been a time war well yeah, okay maybe yeah the explanation so i guess um we'll conclude this we want to thank everyone that was that's that participated in this live uh, episode of Doctor Who Podshock. We do realize um, for those that are celebrating it, it is um, Easter Sunday. So, you know, and, and I know a lot of people. Well, I, I, a lot of people had family obligations. I had gotten a lot of um, email back saying that they would have liked to have been on the show, but they can't. So, uh, but next week we'll return with another live episode, and we'll be reviewing Gridlock in a in, in the in the talk show live episode. So. Uh, they'll have an opportunity to join us then, and I'm hoping that um, everyone here can uh, join us next week, and most likely it'll be at the same time. Of course. I'll be looking forward to it. Um, Although I should point out, I don't know if this episode will go out in time, but I guess you'll be able to listen to it on the website. But next week's episode of Doctor Who is going to be a bit later. I think it's 7.40 or something. 7.40, yeah. Because I hated that with... um, the empty child in that I missed the beginning of it, uh, which annoyed me, but uh, anyway. Taras gave a heads up on our our website in the forums. He gave a heads up on that. And with this episode, this live episode, if anyone wants, if if you're listening to this episode right now, if you're listening to me in our regular feeds, uh, these live episodes can actually be heard in a, excuse me, James, in a rough, ready, raw version uh, on the talk (laughs) show, on the talk show website. So, 30 minutes after we conclude our recording, it will be available to download and listen to if you want to hear the very raw version of it. Otherwise, it will come to your feeds, um, you know, and cleaned up a little bit in post-production, and you'll get it that way. Yeah, But if you, if you want to hear us roar like this, 
feel free to go to TalkShoe, talk that's TalkShoe, not show, TalkShoe.com, and uh, go to um, our page there. There's Profile a page, yeah. I guess yeah. you can do a search for PodShock. Yeah, if you probably go to our website, there's a, you'll get a direct link to our page on TalkShoe. So if you go to podshop.net or gallifreyandembassy.org, and you'll, sign, you'll see an article on the front page about our live uh, podcast. But there's even a flash player in the, the um, left-hand yes. side now, isn't there, Lewis? Do you see, you're so on the ball, mate. It's great <laughs> that uh, we have you for these sorts of things. I'd have completely missed that. But, yeah. Awesome. So... So thanks, I everyone. Uh, Darth, go on, um, you, you're on the Mike, same. I, I, I was just, yeah, I was just thanking uh, everyone that participated here. Tras, who's uh, not live, voice-wise with us, he's uh, listening in and via chat. Am I missing someone? I, I feel like I'm missing someone. No. Well, of course, um, James. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, guys. Very enjoyable. But, yeah. Lots of fun. next week. Yeah, and I have to say, thanks to everybody who showed up in the little talk shoe chat room. There's loads of people. I'm completely astounded and humbled, and it's great uh, to have everybody here. Even I'll have to get better uh, with uh, interacting with people via the text. It's just a bit weird, I guess, for me. We'll sort that out for next time. It's weird how the text is going horizontally backwards instead of, like, up and down. Yeah, it throws you off. I know, it's weird, isn't it? And you can't see all of them. All of the words, it's a bit weird, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's useful anyway. It's nice to get people interacting live. It's okay. So, anyway, gentlemen, thank you all so much. And uh, we'll see you all next time here on Dot 2 Podshop. Okay, take care. Cheers. All right. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Doctor Who Podshock, recorded live on the internet by the fan-run GallifreyandEmbassy.org and presented by Outpost Gallifrey. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Come back next week for another exciting and informative episode of Doctor Who Podshock. You can email us at feedback at podshock.net. Globe Theatre. Containing the man himself. Shut your big fat mouth! Mr. Shakespeare, isn't it? No autographs. Love's Labour's one will never be played. Upon this night, the work is done. Witchcraft. <laughs> Very gnome, gnome. No! An entire future of the human race. It ends right now in 1599 if we don't stop it. Ah, Badaboom! That's quite good. Ah!